mind, if you would, please tonight take your Bible to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. I'm so thankful to be back at Joshua um, this past week. I had the opportunity to preach a revival in Waco. But if, if I'm going to have the congregation not say amen to me, I might as well, I'd prefer it to be y'all. Okay? If y'all are, you know, if somebody's just going to kind of make me feel like nobody's paying attention and people are going to wave their watch at me, I prefer it be Joshua over anybody else in the world. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding, but I'm thankful to be back. Uh, I mentioned to that congregation, yeah, Brother Marshall's already waving his watch. We're not even to uh, uh, 7 o'clock, so you're really needing to hit the altar. Uh, but but um, uh, I was at Waco, and, and I was preaching, and I even mentioned to them how I don't really enjoy preaching out because... I, I feel as if, now, y'all might not like this very much, but I'd rather preach to y'all than anybody. You say, yay, we feel the same way about you, Brother Andrew. No, but I, I'm just, this is my home. I grew up here, and uh, I don't feel as if I have to offer y'all anything, but much less anybody else. But I pray tonight that you'll get a blessing out of this, as I did. And this is really uh, somewhat of a piggyback sermon to the one that I preached before, uh, in this continuation of the series. And we'll actually read the passage that we covered in that lesson or in that sermon, and we'll cover that as well. But we're going to be talking about Saul's or Paul's very first convert. Now, he went on to have what I consider, if not the most successful ministry, one of the most successful ministries in the Bible. Really, the only other argument may be John the Baptist. But... I feel as if Paul was so instrumental in having a, a, a huge impact in the way we currently have church. If we didn't have his writings, we really wouldn't know what we're supposed to do tonight. And so without him and telling us how to do it, it Brother Marshall might speak, start speaking in tongues here in a little bit, but thank you, Paul, you told us not to. So I, I appreciate that, and I'll hit him over the head with some First Corinthians, okay? But uh, uh, I'm thankful for Paul's writings, and I'm thankful for Paul. And we're going to be talking about the transition now from the assassin and the persecutor to now becoming a preacher, but not only a preacher, but a fruitful preacher. Because there are a lot of people that can preach, but some people never see results. But Paul now see his, sees his very first convert. And I'm going to talk to you about this thought. When God says go, but the world says no. So 1 Corinthians, uh, Corinthians chapter 13, uh, that would be a good one to start at, but it's Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 tonight, we'll read verse number 1 all the way down to the conclusion of our passage. Verse number 1, which is where we were at last week, the Bible says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. When they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And if you recall the prevailing thought around the sermon that I spoke on last time, was when you are receptive and open to hearing God's call, you need to be serving where you're at. 
Because it's those that are serving that God then can speak and move. And so these people, Saul and Barnabas, were active in their local church. Now verse 4 teaches us that they're sent out of their local church. For the local church was in uh, verse number 3. They laid hands and fasted and prayed on them. So they're sent by the church. Number Verse 4. So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost... Departing unto Seleucia, from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. And when they had gone through the Isle of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bargesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O fool of all subtility and all mischief, Thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist, and a mist and dark and a darkness. And he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord's blessing upon the sermon tonight. Father, we come to you now humbly submitting to your will for this evening. Father, we ask so mightily for your hand to be upon us, that you would be present here, that you would clearly speak and communicate to each and every soul in this auditorium. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need some soul food, Lord. This world will wear us down and wear us out. But, Father, when we come to meet and gather before your throne, you promise to send your spirit. You promise to empower us, to infill us. And, Lord, I pray tonight that that's what would be accomplished by the preaching of your word. Lord, this world's trying to silence our message, but you tell us to do the exact opposite. So, Lord, help us tonight understand where the disconnect is and how we are to power through that. I pray in your son's precious name. Amen. Now, if you study your Bible very much at all, you find, and this is one theme that is constant throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, it doesn't really matter. When God calls, He always provides. That's just a theme. And you can talk about Gideon and how Gideon, even with only 300 men, God called Gideon, and Gideon confirmed his calling, but when God did call, He provided. When He called Moses, Moses said, Lord, I, I'm just a man that, that is slow of tongue. I, I, I stutter, and I, I don't know what I'm going to say when I'm in front of, of Pharaoh. And God says, don't worry, Moses. When I call, I always provide. And so as we study tonight, God's calling on our lives, and I hope you remember the sermon from the last time, because we specifically spoke about how the ministry is for every single person. It's our ministry to spread the gospel, to help the hurting, to spread the love of Christ throughout this 
a wicked and dying world. That is my ministry, but it is also your ministry as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to take a look if God's calling us to go evangelize this world and to spread the gospel message, does not the world seem so opposed to it, though? Almost as if we were to preach and they say, I want nothing to do with your God. You see, it wasn't very long into Saul's ministry that he faced opposition. And I promise you that once you're saved and once you're called and once you begin to obey God, it won't be very long into your ministry you begin to feel some opposition. But it's how we react when we receive that opposition. And I want to study tonight Saul's life and this passage of Scripture. The other day, my dad and I were working out at the ranch, and we decided to go out early, early one morning, and we were going to plant some food plots or some crops. We were getting about 25 acres of wheat in the ground. And so we left early one morning, and it's a two-hour trip out to the ranch on the butt, and that's how long it takes. But for some reason, with all the all-sip stops and all the burritos and chimichangas and the chocolate milks, that sounds like a good combination, does it not? Chimichanga and chocolate milk. That sounds delicious. But with all of this, we, we, we end up making it in a, a quick four-and-a-half-hour trip. Uh, that's just the way our trips out to the ranch go. So we actually get to work a little bit later than we were planning, but we need to get about 25 acres of wheat planted in one day. That sounds doable. And so we, we had big plans. Well, we get out there. And we, we began to uh, work with the implements. And we began to, Dad's plan is to finish plowing about 10 acres of field while I work on the grain drill so that, that, that we can plant the seed. So Dad's off plowing the easy job and the air-conditioned tractor with, with the cab on it, listening to Southern gospel music. You know, he's got Legacy 5 up there. Where are the monuments we should be building? And I'm out there in the hot sun, wondering why the grasshoppers have come in an epidemic plague, and why it's so hot, and why the sun, although is really high in the sky, how it seems like the moisture from my very skin is being sapped and will someday rain in Arizona. I don't know why, but that's how hot it is. And so I'm out there working on that drill, and I realize that there, it, for, for you lay folk, a grain drill is what you put the seed in, and then you drive it through the field, and it plants the seed and kind of does it all for you. But from the hopper or the container that holds the seed down to the actual uh, discs that put the seed in the ground, there is the best way to describe it is a a twisty straw, okay? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like at QT, when you get a twisty straw. That's, it's a rubber uh, straw, and it takes it from the hopper down to the ground where it drops the seed. And so I was out there, and I realized that the mice or the rats or some crazy squirrel has chosen to eat about four of them. He's just eating rubber straws. Now, I don't know why, but we literally now are running short on these straws. And so Dad says, well, you've got to run up to to go get these straws so that we can plant today. And so Dad says, here's my keys, and here's the American Express. Oh, that's a good day. When Dad gives you the American Express, you're only doing him a favor by spending the money because he gets airline miles, okay? 
That's the way I look at it. But so dad asked me to go and do something for him. He asked me to go get these straws. And so what does he say? He says, Andrew, here's the keys to my truck and the card so that you don't have to pay. Very similarly, as we have been commissioned to go tell this lost and dying world, God doesn't say, go figure out your best method or your best strategy on how to do it. God's given us the plan. He's laid it out and he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go and tell everybody. That's what the Bible says. And so God does not just call us, but he provides and enables us. I want you to notice, first of all tonight, an open door. Now, this had to be so exciting for Saul and for Barnabas. An open door in verse number 7. The Bible says, "...which was with the deputy of the country Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul, and desired to hear the word of God." Now, we do what we call cold calling. We'll go door knocking, just door to door. And that is uh, uh, where you really have no clue who's going to come out from behind the door. You don't know if it's going to be an ex-convict with more tattoos than anything else in his house. You don't know if it's going to be this petite little girl or like I had the other day, this little four-year-old come up to the door and says, I said, hello, little one. And she said, hello, and just lifted her shirt over her head. And I said, okay, well, tell your mom and dad the church people stopped by and... and uh, and, uh, and so, you don't know what's going to happen. There are certain times in the ministry, however, you get these hot prospects. I mean, you get excited about these. Brother John's a little bit of a vulture when it comes to these. Amen, Brother John? Yes, sir. It's these cards. And I've had one of them that said, I want to know how to be saved. I think I can help you with that. Uh, and so that's a hot prospect, man. Somebody who's ready to receive the Lord. And really, a, a dummy could stumble his way to getting that person saved. And, and I'm a dummy, and I stumble often. So that's the kind of prospect I want. And that's what Paul and Barnabas had. So this man says, I want to hear the Word of God. I want to hear more about it. I can just imagine how excited these men must have been as they've been on this mission trip, and now they come and somebody says, hey, I want to hear more about what's going on. We took the youth department down to uh, Brother T.L.'s church in Maybank, Texas. It's a beautiful church. He's got an awesome auditorium. And we took about 30 people down there, and we were just going to go knock on doors and invite people to his church, and it was our East Texas missions trip is what we called it. As we got down there... I did not realize how receptive that area was. I've door knocked in uh, just north of Los Angeles, California, and they have these screen doors on their houses that are, are white and they're metal, and they have tons of little holes in them, but you can only see out of them. You can't see in them. So you hear the door open and you say, Hi, because you're not really sure if you're talking to anyone. And then they say, I don't want none of what you got. Get out of here. And they're really rude. And then I've been here in Joshua or Burleson, and I've knocked doors, and I've had people, okay, yeah, well, I have a church. This is a very religious area, although very, very few people actually attend church services, if you haven't noticed. But uh, 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 so we, we knock on doors all the time, 
But we went down to Maybank, and it was like everybody was looking for a church. I remember going and knocking on somebody's door, and he said, you know what? Me and my family have been wanting to go to a church around here. You know, I want to raise my children up in the right way, and, and I, I, I think that church would be the best way, and, and I would like to do that. And I said, well, there's a church right there that you ought to go to. That's a good preacher. They'll love you. They'll care about you. That is a good church. Did you know, as the teenagers got back in the van, they're all, yeah, we had somebody too. Yeah, we had somebody too. You wouldn't believe somebody's planning on going. And I believe at the end of the day, uh, we visited on Saturday, on Sunday, by the end of the day, in a church that averages about 20 to 25 people, they had 18 visitors just because our youth department went and knocked on some doors. You see, you don't really know if there's an open door unless you ever try walking through it. I would have never known that that man was looking for a church home had I not gone with my wife and invited him to church. I would never have ever seen a prospect enter these church doors if I did not go. Too often, we're the ones that close the open door. How are we to ever know if somebody's looking for a church family? And I promise you, with as many people as bad histories in church, have you ever got that? They say, yeah, I've just had a rough time with pastors. You know what I always say? Well, my pastor's been here 28 years, and he has loved our church. He's never done anything wrong ever one time. He's perfect. And I tell them, you may have had a hard time at church. You may have had heartaches. But I can promise you one thing. If you come to our church, you'll be loved. You'll be loved by a man who's not just going to leave tomorrow. And I'm thankful for that. But we often don't walk through the open door when they're there. Did you know that Paul and Barnabas would have never been effective ministers? They would have never been good missionaries? They would have never been people who talked to this man by the name of Sergius Paulus? If they had not gone? Let me ask you a question. Now, I don't want to offend anybody. Do you ever go? I, I, I don't want to make anybody feel bad, and that is not my intent at all. But has not our commission been to go? In the Bible, it speaks about a banquet that's being made. It's the parable of the banquet. And there's a great feast being prepared. And the man who hosts the feast goes and tells all the, his attendants, all the people who RSVP'd, if you will. And they say, oh, I've got to go, and I've got to marry, and oh, I've got to go, and I've got to buy cattle, and I've got to go and look at land. You know what the, the, the man that's hosting the banquet says? He tells his servant to go into the highways and the hedges and compel others to come in. Because if they weren't going to take advantage of the feast, then the other people who would take advantage would come and eat bountifully. You understand, there's people out in this world that are starving for truth. And our world offers them nothing but confusion. Too many religions claim to have the answer when I don't claim to give them a religion. I claim to give them a relationship. I, I don't desire for them to come and adhere to some policies or some guidelines. I offer them a true and vibrant and living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's all I offer. But I promise if they'll take and eat of that, they'll never go hungry. 
He's the bread of life. He's the living water. Man, there's open doors all around us, but are we taking advantage and walking through those open doors? Not only is there an open door, but I want you to notice in verse 8, an oppressive dilemma. Now, the Bible tells us of this sorcerer in verse 6. And this is what's sad to me, is the man's a Jew. If anybody should know the truth about the Messiah or the Lord, it ought to be a Jew. But he's rejected it, and he's a sorcerer. Verse number 7 says, Which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Verse 8. But Elimas, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Now, I don't know if his main desire was to convert him to sorcery or to Wiccan or whatever religious guidelines or adherences this man observed, but I know as he desired to hear the true word of God, This sorcerer was threatened. And he did not want this man hearing the truth. You know why? Because people in authority who know the truth can start living by the truth and affect and infect others that are under them. Ask Joseph, as the youth department I taught this morning. Everybody who ever came in contact with Joseph knew about the Savior. Even while he was in Egypt, his little bitty servant or his steward goes out. And he's an Egyptian man. And he begins to tell, man, God has done this for you. An Egyptian man. And that was just Joseph's impact on his life. But now we find that this man wants to hear the gospel, but this sorcerer wants nothing to do with that. And he doesn't even want this man to hear the truth or the gospel. He was in direct adversarial, controversial position to what the truth was. Do you know the Bible teaches us in 1 Peter that we have an adversary? It tells us that we are to be sober, be vigilant, because our adversary, the devil. Do you know Satan doesn't want anybody in this world to hear about the gospel who has not already heard? But he's already fighting a losing battle. But Satan wants to take down as many people as he can. Did you know that the Bible in the book of the Revelation tells us that when, when Satan was trying to raise a rebellion against the Lord, that he summoned or somehow uh, uh, attempted a third of the angels to go with him and, and go in this rebellion? The Bible says that the red dragon's tail took out a third of the stars in heaven. And we understand that being the angels. So a third of the angels went with Satan in this uprising and revolt. Now, does that make any sense? Satan had no ability to beat the Lord. He's a created being. The creator is not going to make anything more powerful. And let's just be honest, he couldn't make anything more powerful than he is because he is the ultimate power. And so as... Satan decides to go in this uprising, in this rebellion. He takes a third of the angels, even though he knew he would lose, and they fell with him. He's fighting losing battles. Last year, the basketball team played a team called High Point Preparatory Academy in Arlington. 
Now, their church was at the old Johnson & Johnson factory. Do you all remember where that is? It's right there. Uh, I think it's I-35 and 360, or is it, is it 20? A 20, 20 and 360. It's right there to the left, and they've got the big hallway that walks over the, the pond. I think that's pretty cool. And, and so it used to be the Johnson & Johnson factory, but then it was High Point uh, Church. Well, we played this team in sports, and the year before, they beat us pretty badly. They annihilated us, to be honest with you. But they went on to win state. Well, last year, I had a lot better team. The guys were a better team. There were a few more athletes. They, they started playing like a team. And the first game we played, High Point Preparatory Academy, at our school, at halftime, we were only down by like four or five points. It was a really close game. And, and let me explain to you how good High Point is. Their team was uh, comprised of two AAU teams. I asked the coach at the end of the year, I said, why do you only do like hockey line changes? Like a normal basketball coach puts in a center for a center or takes, uh, maybe wants to play with his uh, uh, matchups or whatever. And so he may take one or two guys and then sub one or two out. But generally, you don't take five guys and put five extra guys in and take those five out. That's more like hockey line changes. And so I said, why do you do that? Why do you put five guys in and take the other five out? And he said, well, to be honest with you, that's two AAU teams. He said, those five guys play on the same AAU team all year long. And they play in tournaments in Las Vegas. And, and the other five guys play in the same tournaments, but they're on a different team. And so if I begin to mix those players, they don't play quite as good together. So what I do is I take my five AAU guys here, take them out, and put five more AAU guys in, and, and then we play like that. Well, I don't want to degrade the talent I had on the team last year, but we didn't have five AAU guys to be found anywhere. We didn't have any AAU guys and so AAU is like a select, a very uh, elite level of basketball. And these guys play all year long. And so it was really their amazing talent against us little short kids. And so uh, we, we were excited about the opportunity. And so we went into halftime and I was like, guys, I've seen Disney movies. It is possible. I remember watching Rudy. I remember the Titans. Man, I've even seen Aladdin and the Lion King. We will be Simba lifted high. And I was so surprised that we were even in the ball game. Second half. And the amazing thing is one of my seniors, one of my better players, didn't even play the whole first half. And I was like, man, we have a chance. Well, second half, we were wore out physically. They just... Since they could bring five fresh guys in and take five guys out, we were playing the same five guys every single second of every, uh, every time. And so uh, I, my guys were getting wore out. And so as the end of the game happened, they ended up pulling a little bit away, and I think we only ended up losing by maybe 16. But you don't understand, 16 against this team is nothing. This team played 4A public school teams and beat them. The state championship team from a year ago, the 4A team, they took to overtime and only lost by three. And I'm talking about that public school basketball. And Matt and Josh, stand up. 
That's my team! <laughs> Thanks, guys. Y'all can sit down. I would have Dakota stand up, but that would be deceiving everybody with your extreme height, okay? We can't do that. And so it was just amazing that we were even in the game. I was so proud of them. And so in the weeks ramping up to the second time, because this team's in our district, in the weeks ramping up to that, I'm thinking, guys, you know, I didn't really think we had a shot at all. I was doing one of those pregame speeches like, guys, whatever happens out there, have fun. <laughs> when your coach says that, you know you're in trouble. Because he's telling you this will probably not be fun, but force yourself to have fun. And so I was like, guys, you never know. Well, now we play them up, at, um, up in Arlington at their place. And at the end of the first quarter, the score was 47 to 12. And if you don't quite understand what that means, if you were to duplicate those quarters, they would almost score 200 points on us. And where I didn't think we had any shot at all, the first game, then we were close. I mean, honestly, that was the best game we played all year long, and we still lost by double digits. I, you never know what's going to happen. I went into that game kind of hopeful, but knowing we were out-skilled, out-athleticized, out-everything, but I said, okay, go play. Did you know that's how Satan has to go into this battle? Well, all I can do is hope, because he knows the ending. He's already been defeated once. He was defeated a second time on the cross of Calvary. And there will be a third time when our Lord puts him away and puts him down for good. That will be a glorious day. Satan's already lost this battle. But while we're here, he is a constant oppressor to the message that we have. As I've studied, I've found three ways that Satan has tried to silence our message. First, through governmental oppression. Throughout history, what has happened is Satan has used governments to silence the message. The problem with this was, as those who were being oppressed had to flee for safety, the message only spread where they went. Do you know that's how the, the message of the gospel spread throughout the countries? Is as oppression set in, they retreated and moved all around, and then the message went with them. I noticed, secondly, that religious oppression occurred, where it wasn't the government doing it, but it was actually religious fanatics who were killing and torturing and forcing us to silence our message. But there again, as that began to take place, they would move and they would... That's how the gospel came to Rhode Island, is because... We were sent over, and then the gospel flourished here, and you have the great awakenings. You have the awakenings here in, in America and the revivals that we've seen. And so as that didn't work either, Satan had to figure out a third strategy. You want to know what it is? It's been his most effective up until this point. Comfort. Take away all oppression. Give them freedom of speech. Give them freedom of religion. And for some reason, that has worked. You see, we're not seeing revivals here in America. Why not? We can say whatever we want about our Lord. We don't have to come with backpacks on us acting like we're learning about the English language tonight. 
We truly have freedom to preach and proclaim the gospel anywhere and everywhere. And somehow, our message and our effective evangelism has diminished. Because we're not going. You see, when we're comfortable, we sit. We soak and we sour. But if we were to sense a little oppression, maybe that's what we need to be praying for. That God would make us uncomfortable. I don't know, but I'm saying that as I study the Bible, I see two ways that were completely ineffective for Satan, and I see one way that's actually being pretty effective here in our current America. Satan will try to oppress us. Satan will try to silence our message. But as Christians, and Christianity is a weak word, and it's getting weaker with every Facebook subscriber. Christian means nothing anymore. You know what means something? Disciple. And disciples are not silent. Disciples tell what their master has done for them. So I hope as we have open doors and we seek open doors, we don't allow this oppressive devil to shut our message down. Thirdly, I want you to notice this. An ordered discipline. Verse 11, Paul begins to show forth apostolic powers. In other words, he's showing things that he is an apostle. Verse 11. Satan, uh, we'll start in verse 10. Paul says, O full of all subtility and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Now, I don't have much to say about this other than I find it very interesting that somebody else in our passage has been rendered blind by the Lord. You know who it was? It was Paul. When Paul was the persecutor, when Paul was the the blasphemer, the assassin, as I like to call him, when that was his job, one day he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. And that day the Lord knocked him to the ground. And we talked about how there's not really a donkey mentioned in the passage. It could be one, but there's not one mentioned. But he fell to the ground and a light shone shone round about him, and that day he lost his sight. But as the Lord talked to him and told him to go, he said that someone would come meet him, and that person's name was Ananias. And Ananias goes and and ministers to Saul and, and talks to him. And then Ananias, by the power of the Lord, removes the blindness from Saul. This man, once he receives his blindness, and can I say this? He was already spiritually blind. Physical blindness meant nothing to him. Because he did not know the Lord any more than uh, the lost, most wicked person in this world. He was completely spiritually blind. And so as Saul renders this discipline from the Lord on him, what takes place is this man begins to seek people to help. He begins to seek those that would help him lead him because he couldn't see. And when God blinded Saul, God had a plan for Saul to receive his sight. 
And that was somebody to come witness to him, somebody to come share the gospel with him, to fill out the blanks, to fill in the blanks. That was God's plan. This man, because of his wicked ways, had no one. And Paul is demonstrating his apostolic authority upon this man and renders him completely blind and ordered discipline. I'm so thankful that in the Bible we find time and time again where God's power is completely overruling to demonic oppression. Luke chapter 8, the very first sermon that I ever preached about the maniac of Gadara, uh, a man comes to Jesus and the man has to fall at his feet while everybody else he could attack, everybody else he could scare. That man that day with thousands of demons falls at the Lord's feet and said, Jesus, my, uh, son of, thou of God most high, what have I to do with thee? What are you doing here? That day, Jesus cast the devils into the swine. I'm so thankful that God's power will always be uh, above and more powerful than demonic oppression. 1 Kings chapter 18, as all the prophets of Baal began to gather, one man stood up for what was right and stood up for God, and Elijah saw an amazing victory that day for the Lord. God's power will always overrule Satan's power. That's just the way it is. I want you to notice finally with me tonight, and Brother Marshall, we're almost done, so you can clip on your watch, okay? Verse number 12. And please, I want you to notice this. This is an amazing truth. Uh, uh, the man is rendered blind because of what Saul has said and because of the power of the Lord. Verse 12. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done believed. Now a lot's gone on. Would you not think that seeing somebody rendered blind who you had known, who you had walked personally beside, uh, losing their eyesight because one man says you've lost your eyesight, would that not be an amazing thing? And I would be astonished by that. But I want you to notice what the Bible says very carefully. Being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. You see, he was not astonished at the power of the Lord. Because the power of the Lord would have been what would have rendered the man blind. You know what the doctrine of the Lord is? The old story. You see, when it comes down to it, as powerful as our God is, the thing that makes him intimate with us and the thing that makes him relational with us is not his power, it was his willingness to love us and his willingness to send his son for us. And while I love passages, the Bible says the Lord owns every uh, creature in the forest and, and a cattle on a thousand hills. And I'm so thankful that the Bible teaches us in John 1 and Colossians 1 that Jesus created everything by the word of his power and by his word is everything upheld. You know why I'm not worried about this world spinning off its axis and the gravitational pull of the moon and Jupiter and, and Saturn and all those pulling us out? Because it's the word of my God being fully capable and fully powerful keeping us here. And so I'm thankful that he is a powerful God. But I'm more thankful of his doctrine. The doctrine that sent his son for us. The doctrine of John 3.16. The doctrine of Romans 5 verses 8. 
and verses 10, the doctrines of 1 John telling us that He loved us. I'm thankful for that. Now, He can be as powerful as powerful can be. President Obama is quite powerful, but He doesn't know me from Adam. But my God does. And I'm thankful tonight that when I was astonished that night at Timberline Baptist Youth Camp and I bowed my head and I asked the Lord to save me, He wasn't saving me because of His amazing power. He was saving me because of His amazing love. And no matter how many amazing miracles people may have seen throughout the Bible, it was never the miracle that saved them. It was always the faith that saved them. In Acts chapter 16, it's the jailer that comes and he notices that the jail doors have been opened and that everybody probably should have escaped. And he even thinks to take his own life. And, and, and Paul calls out and says, don't do what you're about to do. We're all here. And the man begins to question them. How can I have eternal life? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it was an amazing miracle that the jail was just, by, at the very foundation of it, shaken so that these men were freed. But it was not the power of the earthquake that day that got the man to the point of salvation. It was Paul saying, have you met Jesus? He was the God-man who came and unveiled himself in, the, in, in man flesh. And while he was like us, he never became us. While he uh, was around the presence of sin, he never knew any sin. The Bible says there was no guile found in his mouth. And, and, and Peter would begin to say, hey, have you, it's the God-man who made himself personal and 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 veiled himself and, and came in the form of a servant, although he was God and he was the Son of God and he was the Creator God. But he came for you. He came for me. And by cruel, wicked hands, men took him and punished him and beat him and scourged him, even though he knew no sin and even though he was not guilty of anything. And it was by our wicked hands and by yours and my sins that we placed him on that cross. And at any point, my friend, Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. But let me just make this very clear. He didn't need no angel's help. Because if he had called the angels, you want to know where the angels would have derived their strength from? The one hanging on the cross. Jesus didn't need any legion of angels. He has his voice. He has his own power. And yet, he suffered and died for you and me. And then we took him and we put him in a tomb. For just a brief moment, we didn't have direction. We didn't know what we were going to do. Uh, Peter and, and John, they, they all sat kind of despondent because the one that they had trusted to deliver Israel, the Messiah, the King, the one that came, we, we, were just, we just knew He was going to deliver us, and now He lays dead in a grave. And then one morning, Mary, Magdalene and the other Mary, they're going down to anoint the temple with spices. Something unusual happened in that, an angel met them and says, You seek Jesus, but why seek ye the living among the dead? 
For Jesus has risen as he has said. And that day all hope sprang up in us. That day everything changed because we realized he was the Messiah. We realized everything he said was true. And we realized that the message he had given us to share was not only given to us and commissioned to us, it was supported by the only one who would ever demonstrate power over the grave. My father sends me, but my father enables me. You want to know what power is? Power is not miracles. I've seen a miracle, but it does not look like the razzle-dazzle that we expect them to look like. Power is this. And I believe that there's nothing more powerful than this. It's an 85-year-old man laying on a deathbed. Doctors give him no chance of living past the night. Power is this, knowing that when he dies, he has nothing to be afraid of. Do you know there's not one of us in here who have ever experienced death? And yet we have no reason to fear it? That's a miracle. That's power. So often we want these amazing miracles. Hey, Satan's going to oppress us. But you know what the miracle is? The miracle is not shutting up demonic forces. The miracle is not making people who hate our message silence. The miracle is knowing this, that salvation was given to me and offered to all. That's power. We're going to face opposition. It's just the nature of our, of, of our calling. But know that when you go, even the world telling you no, you don't go alone. You're supported. And God says, if I call, I will enable.